Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, please? And we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we, we talked about the fact that grace, the, the, the reality of Christ living in us and through us, is an infectious thing. Jesus referred to it, the kingdom of God, as leaven or yeast, that if you mix a little in a large loaf and give it a little time and a little smooshing together, it infects the entire loaf. And that is what the gospel does. So he sent his people, including us, to just talk about him and the reality of his grace and him wanting to live his life in us and through us. So we started that last week. And uh, one of the things that that, uh, the leaders here at the church want for all of you to be aware of is an excellent book. We mentioned this several times. We actually have some back there at a discounted price, I was told to say. 25% 25% off, I think, something like that. Anyway, it's called Wiki Church, uh, written by some good friends of ours uh, in the Philippines. And uh, this is a church that went from 200 to now over 72,000 members. To be a member of this church means you have to be born again, baptized in water, and committed to the one-to-one discipleship process. And just as of last month, they topped 72,000 people. And the beauty of this book and what they're doing is that is the easiest thing I have ever found. Everybody say easy and simple. How many like simple? Listen, I've read through discipleship materials for years, tried to do a bunch of them with churches we work with, and most of them are so complicated. What they're doing and all the hundreds of churches related to them is so simple, so easy. So I would encourage you, I know many of you have already gotten this book, you can get it in the back if you wish, but I would encourage you to read it. It's a very easy book, it's a readable book for us, just average ordinary folks, but it explains the simple process of how to engage in somebody's life and how to share with them the reality of the gospel. And then what we've done is put together the foundations workbook, and I'm telling you folks, this thing is quickly becoming the go-to material in several places around the world. And this is because you and we together put the material together, paid for it, got it published here and in Asia, and the missionaries and pastors are taking them by the boxfuls, and lives are being transformed. Now, the reason they're being transformed is because ordinary people, Ordinary people, just like you, just like me, just ordinary folks are beginning to talk to their friends, their neighbors about the reality of the good news and share that it is indeed good news. And this was the process that Paul laid out. And what I want to really focus in on today is a statement I made last week, and I I got several questions about this, so we're going to go a little further in it, and that is this. All are not gifted teachers, but all should teach. All are not gifted teachers, but all should teach. I want to show you what I mean by that. When we go to Ephesians chapter 11, or chapter 4, verse, and start in verse 11, this is something that, that Steve Merle, the author of this Wiki Church book, talks about. He talks about the importance of learning to count. Now, that may sound really simple to you and, and to me, but there's a really important truth here. 
And he takes it from these passages of Scripture. In verse 11, 411, it was he, that's Jesus, the ascended Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Next verse, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. According to that verse, who does the works of service? All of God's people, the gifted ministries, uh, gifted in unique ways to prepare all of God's people to do works of service. Then verse 13, and so the, the, the gifted ministers minister, all of God's people minister by serving, and then we come down to verse 13, until we all reach the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Now this is what Steve makes as, as proposition in this book. That over the years, both they, me, most of us in leadership, in Western church especially, have gotten this twisted around. Go to the next slide if you would. We tend to look at it like this. Gifted leaders teach the sheep until the sheep are mature. Then some of the sheep do ministry. <laughs> now go back to that first slide for a minute. Do you see we'd counted, on that previous slide, we counted 11 13, 12. Do you see that? But if we count 11, 12, 13, what we find out is that God equipped some in the body to be apostles, to be spiritual fathers to spiritual fathers, to be foundation layers, or as Paul said, a master builder. Not kings over the people of God. Jesus is the king. There are no others. But certain people are gifted by God to uniquely help leaders lay foundations and fit together, work together. It's a unique calling, unique gifting. We have them in us, in our body today, in the body of church worldwide today. Some are called to be prophets. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, we need to understand that there is a difference between the prophet ministry in the New Covenant and the prophet ministry in the Old Covenant. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant prophet's role. They were all important leaders, but they were all pointing toward Christ, who is the chief prophet of all. But in the new covenant, God wants to speak to us in individual and unique ways, and he gifts certain people who do that. If you get a prophecy, what should you do with it? Nothing, but hold on to it. And if God's actually in it, he will bring it to pass. You there? He will do it. We have prophets in our midst today, evangelists, people who are just gifted to win other people's hearts. You know, look, I feel like, you know, I mean, I could, I, I, I could preach on salvation all day and have to give away free gifts to get people to answer an altar call. But I got buddies who just bump into people on the train and on the plane and, and, and all of a sudden they're leading people to Christ. They're gifted to do that. All of us have a chance to share the gospel. But some people are uniquely gifted and they can then help equip us to do our part of that too. And then pastors and teachers. The word pastor only appears in the English New Testament one time right here. However... That's just because of the way we translate our Bible. The word in Greek that is up there for pastor actually appears many places in the New Testament, except all the other places it's translated as shepherd or shepherds, plural. So that tells us what a pastor is, a shepherd who feeds and takes care of the sheep, not a shepherd who beats down the sheep because that hurts himself besides hurting the sheep. And by the way, they're not our sheep because there's a chief shepherd. That all of us under shepherds have better know we're going to answer to on how we take care of his sheep. And then there are teachers, 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 gifted teachers. 
the importance of gifted teachers, and one of the reasons that cell groups uh, around the world sometimes fail in local churches is when we expect people to prepare teaching who are not gifted to be teachers. So what we see by Paul's statement here is that when we learn to get this in order, then we begin to see this happen. We begin to become mature. We see maturity coming out of people's lives. See, God has set this up within all of creation so that human beings and all other living things that give birth, give birth while they're still young. I just turned 64. I don't want that gift any longer. Thank you. I will bless those of you who can put your baby pictures up. That's awesome. But isn't it interesting? How many of you have had children? How many of you had children before you really knew how to be a good parent? How many of you learned how to be a better parent as you were trying to help your kids grow up? That's real life. And that's what evangelism and disciple-making is all about. As soon as I get a foundation laid in my life that lets me know that I am connected to He who has the authority of heaven and earth, I need to turn around and start helping somebody else lay that simple foundation in their lives. 64. Linda turned 62 just a couple of weeks before that. We've got three natural children. We've got six grandchildren that we raise, help raise as foster, foster children. And now those children are having children. The thing that scares Linda and I is that our obviously very young age, our oldest grandchild is just about ready to turn 27. Great-grandchildren are quickly on their way, and I'm leaving for heaven. But the, the point... The point is that in the spiritual body of Christ, the spiritual family of God is mirrored in the natural family of the human race. That a man and a woman come together at a relatively young age and they begin to have children. And as they help raise those children, they themselves grow into more maturity. And this is the way God has designed for us and the reason that I say, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5, the reason that I say not all are gifted teachers. Paul says to the Corinthian church, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Not all are Ephesians 4 gifted teachers, but all of God's sheep must teach. Now, that sounds contradictory, but let's look and see what that actually means by way of the Scripture. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that we took, a look, we took a look at this passage, and what we said was that the book of Hebrews is entitled that because it was uniquely written to Jewish converts in the first century who were struggling with, what do we do now with the Old Covenant in light of the New Covenant? How many understand the struggle? They had it a lot worse than we did. But the letter of Hebrews is given to us so that we can go through a variety of things that were real in the Old Covenant, but now for us in the New Covenant, they are shadows. They are fulfilled in their fullness in Christ. For example, the commandment to keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Do you know that Paul says in his letters to the Gentile churches, don't let anybody judge you about Sabbath, because Sabbath day in the Old Covenant is a shadow of a Sabbath life in the New Covenant. When they rested from their literal work in the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, we rest 
from working to try to make God love us. We do good works because the love of God is pouring into us and overflowing. We do good works as a result of experiencing His love, not in order to get His love. So the easy and light life becomes that one which we let Jesus live through us. That is the fulfillment of the Sabbath day. Now, is it a good thing uh, for your physical body to still get rest during the week? Absolutely. Of course it is. But we're talking here about a shadow of worship that is fulfilled in a life of Christ. And immediately after the resurrection, those who believed Christ was Messiah began to meet not on the Sabbath day, but they met on the first day of the week. Sabbath day is the last day of the week. They began to meet on the first day. Paul wrote instructions in his letters about how they were to gather on the first day of the week. Now, Paul still, on the Sabbath, would go into synagogues. But he would do that in order to do what? To preach. Because that's where all the Jews were going to gather in any given city. You could find him one day a week in the synagogue. And in almost every case, right after he would really get into a sermon, a riot would break out and they'd kick him out. And finally he said, ah, I remember that word on the road to Damascus while I was laying on the ground all beaten up by this bright light from heaven and now going blind. When Jesus said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. But this is a shadow. So the letter of Hebrews is given to them and to us to help us understand when we read the, New, the Old Testament, we're looking for the shadows that are fulfilled, the promises there that are fulfilled to us in Christ. Now starting next week, Book of Psalms. We're going to be getting into the book of Psalms. Josh is going to kick it off next week. And we're going to begin to talk about how do we read some of those Old Testament passages, but read them with a new covenant mind. That begins next week. Don't forget it. Now, when we look here at Hebrews chapter 5, the context of this is that he's been writing before, just before this, he's been writing about Melchizedek. Back a couple of bit further, he's been writing about the law, different aspects of food, ceremonies, all that, saying this is all shadow. Fulfilled in Christ. Then he says this. We have much to say about this. Now, what's this? He's talking specifically about Jesus came to fulfill the priesthood of Melchizedek. That that's what this is. That the shadow of the old covenant is the substance for us today. So he says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. I raise both hands there. I am slow to learn. Now, notice this next statement. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, who's he writing to? Everybody. He's writing to all believers, not just to select few, but all believers. And God has preserved this letter for us today, 2,000 years later. It was not written directly to us 2,000 years ago, but it certainly is written for us today. So we look at that and say, I ought to be a teacher. Wait a minute. How do I do that? Jesus said, go into all the world and share the gospel, making disciples. The point is that just as we would give birth to a, a human child and help feed them baby food until they grow up big enough to feed themselves and to take care of themselves, so all of us should in some way or another be involved in this process, spiritually speaking. So now he goes on. He says, you ought to be teachers by now, but because you have not uh, uh, gotten the elementary truths, you have need that someone teach you the elementary truths. Elementary truths. You see that? The foundational issues over again. We're not talking about the deeper life. We're talking about being founded on the rock of Christ's authority in both heaven and earth. 
And we need somebody to help us learn that. Once we've learned it, we need to immediately begin to ask God to give us somebody that we can help them learn these elementary truths. So he says, you need milk, not solid food. Now look, if that's what I need, that's not embarrassing. That's what I need. And if I'm going to grow to solid food, i got to do the milk thing, and that's important. I mean, that's part of the growing up process. doesn't matter how old we are or how long we've been in church. we just got to be able to grow that. But here's the question. What is solid food? So he goes on and he says, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. There you go. For the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Give me this, the... Um, uh, the next slide, please. Here's a question. Slide four. Here's a question. There are two questions we have to deal with. Number one, what is solid food? What is solid food? From the passage we just read, we need to be able to answer that question. What is solid food? Let me tell you a couple of things solid food is not. Solid food is not understanding all the book of Revelation. But solid food is something. The writer of this letter ordained by God, God breathed this letter through this person, Solid food is something specific. The next question is, who are the mature? What does that mean? How mature do you need to be in order to disciple somebody else? Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Come back to this if you would, please. Look, he says here, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with what? The teaching about righteousness. The issue is, what makes me righteous? What makes me righteous? The Bible teaches from cover to cover that righteousness comes as a gift from God that I receive by putting my faith in the finished work of Jesus. And until I understand that my righteousness is not a result of my performance, but His righteousness in me enables me to perform good works. I don't good works in order to get righteous. I realize more and more that I've been made righteous by Jesus and his righteous life wants to live through me. So, I've been, solid food is for the mature. Who's the mature? Those who have used the teaching about righteousness to train themselves to be able to say no to evil and yes to good. That's, that's biblical maturity. Feeding myself and letting others feed me on this understanding that the righteous one is living in us. And as we learn to cooperate with him, he begins to empower us and we can distinguish good from evil. We can say no to evil and yes to good as we grow in the understanding. Now we are made righteous in Jesus and he is also teaching us how to behave righteously. Those are two different things, but you got to get them in the right order. I've got to come to the full faith and knowledge that I have been made eternally righteous by His sacrifice. Then, now, He is wanting to empower me to actually behave righteously as I grow in His grace. So, what is solid food? Teaching about new covenant righteousness. And, according to the rest of the parts that we read in the book of Hebrews, Learning to understand the shadows of the old covenant, how they are fulfilled in the new covenant. And truthfully, that is what this foundations book that we're talking so much about is all about, to try to help us understand that. So then we come to another question. That question is, how mature do we have to be in order to disciple someone else? 
how mature do we have to be in order to be one of these teachers that Hebrews says? Hebrews says we all should be teaching these elementary truths. How mature do you need to be? Well, let me give you a few verses and a few ideas. Number one, you need to be mature enough to ask for direction and correction. You need to be mature enough to know you don't know enough. Proverbs 12.1 was emblazoned on my heart several years ago from an encounter that I had with my pastor. I'll tell you the story later sometime. But Proverbs 12.1 says, He who loves discipline loves life. But he who hates correction is stupid. Now the Hebrew word there is Stupid. Uh, It means exactly what you think it means. In the King James, it's brutish, which is referring to a stubborn ox as a brute. Other translations translate it as stupid, ignorant. We're hurting ourselves when we don't invite. Now, it's one thing to endure. How many know what I mean when I say that God will lovingly chase us into a corner for our good? and force correction into our lives because he loves us but that's not our best the best for us is to be inviting him to speak to us correcting truth in any way he chooses to speak i uh, (laughs) my daughter put up one of my quotes about six months ago on our website and it said this if somebody who doesn't like you gets mad at you tries to hurt you by criticizing your behavior, and you listen to what they say and find some truth in it and make changes in your life because of it, won't they be mad? (laughs) But you'll benefit. How mature do we have to be? We have to be mature enough so that our motive For discipling someone else is based entirely on love. Let me tell you, when we're discipling another person, we have no authority over their lives. We have no rulership over their lives. We're not their Lord. We're not their King. In fact, we're teaching them to respond to Jesus as Lord and King. And we're trusting that there is a miracle going on inside of them, the working of the Holy Spirit, that none of our brilliance will actually help. We teach the milk. They lay the the foundation by their faith, and a miracle happens. So Galatians 5, you can write this down, look it up later. Galatians 5, 13, 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. Now listen to these next words. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whenever we are mentoring, discipling someone else, the only real issue is, are we seeking to be motivated by agape, the Greek word for God's love, divine love that's living in us already, but we have to yield to its work through us. So we are are empowered by His love inside of us 
And we are walking in humility, wanting our life to be open to God, to speak correction to us, however he chooses to do it. And the result is we become trustworthy. Now, I'm going to mess you up, Sarah. I'm sorry. But would you go to the very last slide, please? Um, no, that's not right. Forget that. Forget that. Slide five. Sorry. Slide five. Slide five. Now, I want you to remember this, and it's really easy to remember because of the way numerically it's laid out. Timothy, 2 Timothy, 2-2. Two, two. 2 Timothy 2.2. Two. This in two sentences lays out how simple the discipling process needs to be in our lives and in somebody else's life that we try to help. Paul says to Timothy, his son of the faith, you have heard me teach many things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Teach these great truths to trustworthy people who are able to pass them on to others. It's an amazing thing that I see when I look at this, and that is that this simple process, just like we just had a baby born, that baby's going to be cared for, be taken care of, fed until she grows, or he grows, sorry, he grows, and, and comes into maturity. And then he can begin to feed somebody else and do that to somebody else. And we have generation after generation. Here we have at least four generations. We have Paul, who discipled Timothy. Timothy is instructed to pick some trustworthy, not people who know all the answers, but people who are trustworthy. What makes us trustworthy? Humility, being motivated by God's love and not our own self-gain. You know, Paul warned the leaders from Ephesus as he was on his way back to, to Jerusalem for the last time before he'd be locked up in Rome. He warned them and he said, I know that after I leave, some of you, will rise up and try to draw disciples unto yourself. And he says, this is something that you must not allow to happen. We're not discipling people to act like us. We're discipling people to experience the living Christ in their lives, working through their lives. So we have at least four generations, Paul to Timothy to a group of trustworthy disciples, and then they will teach others, and many others will multiply. So the trustworthiness, and I want to read just one paragraph out of Steve Merle's wiki book. Listen to this. The truth about maturity. We can't wait until every believer feels mature enough to minister. Because no one will mature unless they are ministering. I wish that I could wait until I have enough muscle in my biceps to lift a heavy weight. I will just wait until that moment, and then I will. But that ain't the way it works. you got to be lifting weights. That's not fair. That's not, there's something wrong there. You know, that, I'm sure that came from the fall. We'll just chalk it up to that. But see, that's the reality you learn by doing it. It's the same way in the natural, same way in the spiritual. I love this. We cannot wait because no one will feel mature unless they are actually ministering. This is one of those chicken and egg conundrums. Which comes first, ministry or maturity? According to the Bible, right here, Ephesians, I'm sorry, not right there, but, you know, Ephesians 4 is what it's referring to. According to the Bible, ministry comes first. Remember how to count, 11, 12, then 13. As we minister, wherever we're at, say, so, well, I don't know very much. You don't need to know very much. You know more than somebody who's just coming to Christ. That's all you need to know. 
We jokingly say sometimes, the only thing you need to do to help share the truths in this foundation's workbook with somebody else is to stay one chapter ahead. Because they don't know where you're going. They're not going to be asking you all the questions there. And you know what the right answer is when somebody asks you a question and you honestly don't know? I don't know. But I'll try to find out. Simple. Isn't that what you did as a parent? Come on, when you had some frustrating thing with your little b child that cried all the time, you didn't know what to do. You asked somebody who'd already done it. This is not complicated. But it is life-changing. It is miraculous for us. In this statement, and um, put up the timeline for me, I'm sorry, slide six. It's very important. Last week, we were talking about the fact that there was, and this came as a surprise to some of you because you emailed me, and I understand it. It was a surprise to me when I first began to realize the timing of this. This is a timeline of part of the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts. The dates are amazing here. We're starting with the year 30, by the way, simply because hundreds of years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, they readjusted the, cal- the Roman calendar. There had been a mistake, and so technically Jesus was born in 4 B.C., uh, but it's just, it's just a numbering problem. But if we're going to look at history, especially, especially secular history, we go by the dates and who were the leaders at that time according to history. Pentecost in Acts 2 happened in the year 30 A.D. Jesus has already gone back to the Father. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit descends upon them and the church begins on the day of Pentecost. Year 30. Five years later, Stephen is stoned And the first persecutions come against the church five years later. Now, here's the significance of that. They have not left Jerusalem yet. Jesus said, go into all the world, and they refused to go. They stayed in Jerusalem until five years after Pentecost when persecution got so bad. They didn't leave because they wanted to do missions. They left to save their lives. They left so they didn't have such a hard life because of the persecutions. Five years after Pentecost, Philip, five years after Pentecost, goes to Samaria. Samaritans were half-breed Jews. They were Jews whose ancestors had intermarried with other people. So the pure-blood Jews hated them, would not even go to Samaria. When Jesus wanted to go, his disciples were shocked. It took them five years to be willing to share the gospel with Samaritans. You don't know what you don't know. They didn't know they were being racist, folks. They just didn't understand. Paul is converted in Acts 9. That's six years after uh, 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 the day of Pentecost. The first Gentiles are converted when Peter goes to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. That's 10 years after the day of Pentecost. There, There is no record of a Gentile being born again For 10 years after the day of Pentecost, there was a racism that was so rooted in their hearts that it took 10 years for God to break this out of them. Finally, the first Gentile church was founded in Antioch. You find it in Acts 11. That is 13 years after the day of Pentecost. The first Gentile church. And when the apostles heard about it, they didn't believe it. So they sent Barnabas to check it out. They sent Barnabas for a reason. They had all been born and raised in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. Barnabas was born and raised on the island of Cyprus. He was a Jew, 
but he grew up among Gentiles. He felt comfortable among us weird Gentiles. So he went, and when he went there, it says in Acts chapter 11, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. You know what he saw? He saw Gentiles who knew nothing about the old covenant law, but their lives were becoming more and more like Jesus. In fact, in chapter 11 it says, and the Gentile believers in, the, in Antioch were the first ones to ever be called Christian. Because somebody, and by the way, it wasn't the apostles. You read these passages, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But the ordinary people fled. And when they ended up in a Gentile city of Antioch, they just started to talk about him. And as they talked about him, he began to infect them. And as they, he infected them, they began to talk to somebody else, and they got infected. Give me the definition of grace, if you would, please. I think you have it there on a the slide, do you? Yes, New Covenant Grace is the airborne infection of transforming power that spreads by human contact when we simply talk about Him. Would you stand with me, please? There are people who will listen to you, who will sit with you and listen to what you have to say because you are the unique personality that you are. Many of them would not first listen to me. Many of them would not first listen to Pastor Josh. But there are some people out there that God has uniquely designed for you to have influence so that if you will talk about Him, they might get infected. And all that's required is to talk about Him and use the materials that gifted teachers have put together for us. Simple, simple, but they've put it together for us. Use the tools so that you and I can help others be infected with the life of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you to help us. We're asking you right now, Lord, this week, we're asking you to cause us to cross paths with someone that we can share you with them. Lord, cause us to bump into somebody. Cause somebody's face to come to our memory and say, you know, I need to reach out to that person and find out if they'd like to grow in new covenant grace. Help us do it, Lord. The one promise we know is that if we will do this Matthew 8, 28 Great Commission, you said you will be with us even to the end of this age. We thank you. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.